My name is Andrew Jones, and I'll be reading Luke 9, 18 to 25 today. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone about this. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Good morning, Elevation, and welcome once again to this online space. Most of our days are like most other days, and most of the moments that make up a day are most like most of the other moments that make up that same day. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually pretty rare to have a genuinely unique experience, something that you could say you have never experienced before. We all have our routines, our places, our habits, but then every once in a while, something sneaks into one of those ordinary moments and blows the whole thing up. Well, this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I was sitting in our living room on a love seat on a FaceTime call with a friend of mine, and we were in the middle of some kind of conversation, and something caught my eye out of the window beside me in our backyard. And I was like, whoa. Uh, I looked over to the left, and what I saw was a huge fox running through our backyard. And I said to my friend, wow, that's crazy, sorry. Um, I was just distracted. I saw a giant fox like run through our yard, and he's like, a fox? In the middle of the day, this is crazy. I said, I know. Uh, so we're talking about how crazy this was, and then something else catches my eye, uh, and I look to the left, and I see a dog, a small white dog, chasing, I assume, the fox, also through my backyard. And I'm giving the guy a running commentary, I'm like, this is crazy, now I see like a dog that is obviously chasing the fox through my backyard. Um, and uh, I'm giving this running commentary, but no sooner than I explain the dog, I see something else out of the corner of my eye. And this is a middle-aged woman who is, I would say running, but kind of hobbling a little bit. She's obviously a little injured, following the same trajectory, chasing the dog, which is chasing the fox. And I'm describing this like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this is actually happening, but it's not over because there is now a man who I would assume is probably her husband wearing a bright red windbreaker. And he is running down the hill through our backyard, chasing his wife, who's chasing the dog, who's chasing the fox. And so all of this is happening and it's hilarious. And we're just having a good laugh about it. And he's like, oh, this would be a great like children's storybook if you ever feel like writing one. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a knock on the back door on our deck. And I'm like, OK, this is just getting out of control. I said, honestly, our neighborhood is just like boring. Um, but I said, I'm going to leave you on the call while I answer this door, because I have no idea who is knocking. And you might just want to be a part of this. So I go to the door, and I open it. And it's Jude, and, which is strange, because why would he come around the back of the house? So I guess what happened is he got off his school bus at the end of the day, and he came to our house. And this woman was like chasing her dog around, trying to catch it. And he helped her catch the dog. But in the meantime, it had left a little surprise on our lawn, and she wanted a plastic bag so she could clean it up. So Jude was knocking on the backyard to give her a plastic bag. He later found out um, via a text from his friend, which said, hey, thanks for saving my dog, that this was actually his friend's mom. Anyways, dramatic story, middle of the day, totally out of nowhere, not at all ordinary. Because every once in a while, something extraordinary will break into our life, and it'll bring us joy. But a life of faith 
involves finding the extraordinary in even the most mundane. Miroslav Volf writes, when we experience ordinary things as God's gifts, and when we rejoice in experiencing them as, as such, the world then becomes to us what God created it to be. Now, on the surface, the series that we're in the middle of is about as ordinary as it gets. We're talking about Jesus. That's kind of what you do in church. But if we can find a way to hear these stories and listen to these words afresh, we will discover who Jesus is and that he is alive and well in this moment here and now. So what we're doing over the course of this month is we're walking through the Gospels chronologically. We're starting with the beginning of Jesus' life in Matthew, the next section in Mark, this morning in Luke, and next week we'll finish up with the end in, J in the Gospel of John. Like a portrait that an artist is still working on, today is about giving form to the splashes of color that we laid on the canvas last week. Luke begins his Gospel this way. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So interesting to note, Luke was not an eyewitness himself. He did not actually know Jesus. So through this gospel, he is doing for others what others had done for him, which is passing on the good news of Jesus. Now, this also might be hard for us to wrap our heads around, but the gospel authors would not have assumed that readers had access to other accounts. So when, G John, when Luke is writing this, he's not thinking, well, someone's got Matthew and they're reading over there and someone's got Mark and I wanna like compete with them. He's assuming I'm writing to people who don't know the stories of Jesus and I wanna give them as much detail as I can here. So Luke goes on to explain that he has prepared an orderly account of his own. Unfortunately, the way the New Testament ended up being ordered, it separates two volumes of Luke's story. My kids love shopping at Value Village. Um, occasionally they find a gem. How you define a gem is up in the air. Uh, Sophia came home with a full body gold glittery suit uh, the other day and I let her know that there was really no circumstance under which it would be a good idea for her to wear that so she returned it. Um, Owen came home the other day with a book and I didn't like see the title, I just saw it on his stack of stuff and then he said, oh, did you see the book I bought? And I said, yeah, what is it? He said, War and Peace. And I had this like quizzical look on my face. He said, well, it's volume one because I'm like, the book is really thin. And I said, oh, so you just bought volume one? He said, yeah, if I like it, I'll buy the rest. And I was like, okay, interesting approach to literature, but we'll roll with it. So Luke is volume one and Acts is volume two. Now the, facts that, the fact that Acts follows on the heels of Luke is a great reminder that the story of Jesus was never meant to just be heard full stop, but is an invitation and a call to action, which is what the book of Acts is all about. Now, we've spent some time looking at Matthew's emphasis on Jesus' teaching and Mark's emphasis on the way that Jesus announced the inbreaking kingdom through his actions. Luke provides us with a mix of both, with a particular focus on Jesus' use of parables. He includes 24 parables in all, and 18 of them are unique to this orderly account of his. So what's a parable? A parable is a story that captures a piece of timeless wisdom, drawing listeners in not by rational argument, but by the way that it resonates, like any good story does, with something deep down, with a sense that this is the way things are. And so all kinds of different stories Jesus tells about someone scattering seed, about a good Samaritan, about the rich fool, about mustard seed and yeast, about a Pharisee and a tax collector, about a shrewd manager, about a persistent widow, and the list goes on. The ordinary made extraordinary through story. The more parables we hear, the more confused we might become about what Jesus was getting at, but in the process, our old, worn ideas about religion are stretched out, making room for something more than we previously thought possible. 
Jesus taught in this way, at least in part, because the kingdom of heaven isn't something that can actually be explained without a story. It's too messy for definitions. It's too nuanced for formulas. I like what Robert Weber says. The moment the church capitulates to the culture and speaks out of one or more of the culture stories and not out of the story of God, the church loses its nature and mission and ceases to be salt and light to the world. And so as we gather together, week in and week out, we do so to explore this kingdom life together. But there's another reason that Jesus spoke this way that is a little more difficult to understand. We read about this in Luke 8, verse 10. Jesus said to his disciples, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. Now, if there's anything Jesus said that is bound to confuse people, including us, it's this acknowledgement of his that at times he was actually trying to confuse them. But as Luke reveals in the chapters that follow, the whole following Jesus thing was never supposed to be a walk in the park. Now, I want to go a little further back in Jesus' story before we keep moving forward. And I want to read from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. So this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I read this passage on one of the most significant nights of my own faith journey. Melissa and I were leaders of a junior youth group uh, in the Pentecostal church that we are a part of, and we had a retreat weekend. And as we were sitting there and I was listening to the speaker, I did what, you know, everyone who really wants to hear from God does, and I opened the Bible randomly and hoped that the passage would speak to me. The passage that I opened it to was Luke chapter 4, the passage that I just read. And I've had this growing sense that somehow this was describing the life that I was supposed to live. Uh, we ended up having a lengthy time of kind of individual prayer. And at the end of this time of prayer, I said to Melissa, uh, I need to talk to you something. I believe God's saying something to me. She said, that's crazy. I was just going to say to you that we need to talk because God is saying something to me as well. So we walked upstairs from this basement room and we sat in an empty dining hall of this retreat center. And I said, I believe that God is calling me like, to be a pastor. And she said, he is because he just told me the exact same thing. So this passage resonates with me, this sense of, of calling, of understanding that there is this calling to spread good news. And for 23 years, I've had the privilege of proclaiming the same good news in the small corner of the world that we call home. But Jesus' announcement that he had come to proclaim good news went far beyond anything that I or anyone else could dream of, because he himself was the good news. Now, Luke chapter 9 is essential if we want to try to understand who Jesus is. It actually begins with a question about this very thing. Luke 9, verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? As we heard in our reading earlier, they rattled off some guesses that people were making, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe some other old-time prophet who's come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, as we read in Mark's gospel last week, Jesus goes on to tell his inner circle that the Son of Man would soon suffer, be killed, and would rise again. 
And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So if following Jesus is a walk in the park, it might be something more like a stroll through Central Park in the middle of the night in the 80s. Like not somewhere you want to be. Not easy or safe. But far from being a bad idea, Jesus suggests that when it comes right down to it, this kind of risky business is what life is all about. We read in Luke 9, verse 24 to 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Now, any teacher worth their weight in salt has to be willing to practice what they preach. And Jesus was. Luke 9:51 is a turning point in Luke's gospel, in the story of Jesus' journey. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This was an intentional turning towards not only the city of Jerusalem, but his death. And this kind of language is echoed seven more times from this point on in Luke's gospel, such as Luke 13, 33. I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. As Jesus makes his way toward the city, he has more to say about what it will mean for people to follow him, and also what it means to be followed or pursued by God. One of the parables Jesus tells comes in the context of a dinner party that he had been invited to, where he recognized some unhealthy patterns unfolding around the table. He noticed that people were kind of jockeying for position. They wanted to only talk to certain people. And he noticed that there was actually only a certain kind of group of people that were invited to this party. So he challenged the guests and then eventually the host directly to avoid inviting only those who would be of some benefit, but instead to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. When one of those who were at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Of course, he replied with a story. And he tells this story about how the master sends his servants out to tell all the people who've been invited that the feast is ready. But they all start making excuses. I just bought a field. I just bought some oxen. I just got married. Well, we can all identify with that part of the story, can't we? What are your excuses? Maybe it's something like, my career is just getting going, or these kids are all that I can handle, or I'm tired. Like whatever it is, we all have reasons that we might not be able to follow Jesus the way that he's calling us to. Ian Morgan Crone describes our Sunday, ga Sunday gatherings this way. People telling the story together and in telling our common story, we re-narrate the world. We gather like this in order to change the way that we see our lives and our call to be part of the kingdom. Now, in the end of Jesus' story, the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This parable is one of the focus points of the gospel, announcing at once the wideness of God's mercy and the need for each and every one of us to respond to the invitation or risk missing out on life in the kingdom of God altogether. Now, I offer a little confession for you today. Luke is my favorite gospel if we're allowed to have favorites. And chapter 15 is my favorite chapter. It begins this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them three stories. The first story was about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. 99 of them were accounted for, but there was one missing. So what does a shepherd do? 
Well, he leaves the 99 and he goes off in search of the one. And when he found that one lost sheep, he puts it over his shoulders, he brings it back to the other and he calls all his friends and neighbors around and throws a big party to celebrate that that one sheep that was lost had been found. Right away, Jesus says, another story for you. There was a woman, she had 10 silver coins, but one of them had gone missing. So what does she do? She sets the, t the nine aside and she grabs her broom and she gets down on her hands and knees and she sweeps every corner of the house until she finds that silver coin. And when she does, she calls all her friends and neighbors and she says, come and celebrate me. I found the coin that was lost. And then he tells a third story. It's about a father with two sons. And one of the sons early in the story is lost. He decides he doesn't want to be part of his father's household anymore. He doesn't want his father in his life. So he takes his inheritance and he takes off in wild living and squanders it all. Eventually he comes to a point where he decides well, the only way for me to stay alive is to grovel back and maybe become a hired hand in my father's household. So he does this, he prepares this speech on his way back, but as he gets to the end of the laneway, his father, who was like standing there with his face pressed against the door, waiting for his son, he runs down, humiliating himself, wrapping his son up in his arms and welcomes him home. He does what the others in the previous stories had done. He calls the neighbors, calls the friends, kills the fattened calf, throws a giant party for his son who is lost, was now found. But then Jesus adds a twist to this third story because there were two sons. And the other son, it's not a sheep, or a coin which can't really respond. So this third son, or the second son in this third story responds, and he doesn't respond well to his brothers coming back, and he doesn't respond well to his father's celebration. His father says, well, son, you've been here the whole time. Everything that I have is yours. And Jesus leaves the story hanging like this. Henry Nouwen actually refers to the th this third story as not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the father's love. You see, whatever you might think about the gap that exists between yourself and your father in heaven because of what you've done or maybe what you've left undone, Jesus blows those ideas out of the water and paints an entirely new picture of unhesitating love and grace. These three stories are Jesus' answer to the question, you wanna know why I welcome sinners and eat with them? Because this is the heart of God, that it is worth leaving everyone who's already in to go out and find the one who's not. God is a shepherd. God is a woman, God is a father, watching and waiting, longing for the day when you and I will return to his embrace and begin the celebration. The parable ends unresolved, an invitation for the Pharisees to enter the kingdom. Would they? Will we? As Jesus proclaimed after sharing a meal in the home of a certain tax collector named Zacchaeus, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That is what Jesus came for. Now, while Jesus initially asked people to keep quiet about his identity, by chapter 19, he was no longer hiding the fact that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And we pick up the story, which will sound familiar to you, but we don't usually read it at this time of year. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany on the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. And so they do as he instructs and Jesus gets on this colt and he prepares to enter the city. When he came near the place where the road goes down called the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
Now, last week I pointed out the rumblings of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But as the narrative continues, the conflict intensifies. Jesus doesn't exactly help his case as he storms through the temple, shouting things like, my house will be called a house of prayer, as he knocks over tables left and right. I saw this great headline this week uh, in the news, heroic pastor tackles gunman at church altar. So it's this tiny little church and they're having a service and this guy stands up and you can see him in the picture. He's got this gun and he's waving it around the church and the pastor sneaks out a door and he comes up from behind and you can watch the video of it. He jumps on this gunman from behind, tackles him to the ground. It's just amazing. Now I have never been and hope that I never will be in a situation like that. But tackling a gunman to the ground isn't the only way that we can be heroic in this space. Father Maximus writes, the ecclesia, which is the Greek word for the church, was created for healing the split between us and God. This is why we gather. And this is why I've stood up here every Sunday morning to announce the goodness and grace of God and remind us that however distant we might feel from God in a given moment, God will never leave us, will never forsake us, will never give up searching for us, doing everything possible to see that we find our way to the table to feast with him. And a feast is where we're gonna end our time this morning. I like to read from Luke 22, verses 14 to 18. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What we're about to do together carries additional significance for me today. As I inch my way a little closer to understanding what Jesus might have felt sitting around the table that night, knowing that this was the last time they would share a meal together, that this is the last time we will share a meal together as pastor and congregation. Granted, whatever I end up doing next will pale in comparison to the road that Jesus had to walk. Melissa said I had to be very clear about this. I don't wanna draw the parallels too closely. But let me say that I wish we could all be together for this, that I could do what I've done hundreds of times in this space, just sit in my pew, soaking in both the beauty and the brokenness of this community of faith that we call Elevation, giving thanks for and praying for all of you as you file past me down the center aisle here at 22 Willow on your way to receiving the bread and the cup. I will miss this. But then Jesus said that it was the last time that he will eat the meal with them until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, which is something that I too we'll look forward to. You see, Christian faith has a lot to do with the here and now, and I hope that much has been made clear this morning, but it also points to a future time when we will all sit around that great banquet table that Jesus spoke about in Luke 14. As our journey together draws one week closer to its end, I'm thankful for the reminder that in a much more important and lasting sense, we will continue to gather around the same table even if it's not in the same place. At this point, we are going to have a song for some time of reflection, and I'm gonna invite you to get the communion elements, the bread and the cup uh, prepared. And I will return on the other side of that to lead us uh, in sharing those elements together.
Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's share the bread together, remembering Christ's body broken for us. Lord, we give thanks that you lived this beautiful and incredible life, but we're willing to lay it down for us, for our souls, for our lives, for our world. Help us to be the kind of people who are willing to lay our lives down for one another in your name. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Let's share this cup together, remembering Christ's sacrifice for us and remembering the forgiveness of sin. Let us share. Lord, we are grateful for a new covenant that is not about following rules, is not about mediating a relationship with you through other people, but is about love and grace, an invitation to dine with you at this feast. So we give thanks for your blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. And we pray that we would forgive one another. In Christ's name, amen. As we wrap up our time together, today, I'd like to remind you that you are invited to join with others from our Elevation community in a post-service discussion that will be built around some of this morning's themes. You can do that at 11 o'clock if you hop, in just a, hop on just a few minutes before 11. Uh, there'll be a 45-minute discussion time that you can participate in. The link for that should be in the comments or it was also in the email that would have been sent out at the end of this past week. May God go with you into the rest of this week. Peace to you.